Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Christine Lamberson. Welcome to New Books in History. Uh, I'll be hosting today, and I'll be speaking with Barbara Hahn and Bruce Baker about their new book from Oxford Press, uh, titled The Cotton Kings, Capitalism and Corruption in Turn-of-the-Century New York and New Orleans. And this great new book is about cotton and about capitalism and about corruption and has a lot of relevance to today's markets and really thinking about how the economy works. So welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Christine. So just to get started, um, since we're talking to two people, we'll go one at a time, but tell me a little bit about yourselves and how you became historians. And then after that, we'll talk a little bit about how you came to this particular project. But Barbara, why don't you start? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay. I'm a local historian. I started my work in Cincinnati, which is where I'm from, uh, working on the urban history. And I moved, I completed my master's thesis at the University of Cincinnati on train stations and city planning. And then I moved to Chapel Hill for the PhD and was looking for local history to do there. So I write a history of the U.S. tobacco industry and its interaction with tobacco agriculture over several years, over several centuries. And um, then as I finished that project, I was looking for something that would be light and fun and wouldn't take 10 years to finish. And Bruce, my old friend from graduate school, came to me with a group of sources. Bruce, I'll hand it off to you. Yeah, um, I have maybe a bit of a, a kind of checkered or maybe not checkered, but varied sort of background. I actually started out studying electrical engineering as an undergraduate and then shifted to English and philosophy. But I first came to Chapel Hill to do a master's degree in folklore. And I I did a a thesis about ballads, about lynchings. And so my interest really sort of shifted more in the sort of direction of the the intersection between oral tradition and, and folklore and history. And so then I came back a few years later to do a PhD in history at Chapel Hill and wound up at that time writing about uh, social memory of reconstruction, which is quite a long way from cotton futures trading. But the way I ran into this topic, I was annotating uh, another set of sources that then was published as The South at Work. And there was a reference in the the source that was uh, a letter from somebody in New Orleans, and he had visited the cotton exchange and met this guy called Brown who had cornered the market the year before. And I went looking for just a article or a book that explained what that was to put in a footnote and I didn't find it. So I started looking for primary sources and I found a bunch of newspaper articles and then I kept finding more stuff. And I thought this is actually more interesting than uh, finishing up what I was doing at the moment. Or, you know, it was something that I thought, well, Nobody's ever written about this. You know, this is somebody who, in 1903, for several months, controlled the cotton supply of the world. This seems significant. But I realized that 
I'd written about lynching. I'd written about social memory. I had no idea about business and cotton and stuff like that. But I thought, ah, my friend Barbara, she knows. She's just finishing up a book about tobacco. So, uh, yeah, we met up at a conference, and I brought a bunch of sources, and we talked about it. And I said, you know, do you want to work on this with me? So uh, that's how we got started. That's great. So tell us a little bit about uh, Cotton Futures and about this story. I think probably more than maybe uh, your usual New Books in History podcast, I'm going to go ahead and assume that we probably have some listeners who don't necessarily know exactly how Cotton Futures work. Um, So if we could just take a minute to explain those basics, and then we can talk a little bit about what was happening in the early 1900s and to create this kind of particular moment in the market? Sure. Um, I'll pick it up here. I hope I can be clear. We're very clear in the book. We have a glossary that helps explain these matters so as not to interrupt the flow of the narrative. But at the same time, I think that we do a good job of explaining just what you need to know as the story progresses. Um, And to be frank, we didn't know that much about it before we began, so we really had to learn as we went. And it's a very interesting story. In the the, um, late 19th, early 20th century, cotton futures trading um, and futures in general were sort of the new financial derivative, the way that we're struggling with new financial derivatives today. Futures are rather simple in principle. It's essentially a promise between a buyer and a seller, um, a contract that says, I want cotton three months from now for my mill. So I am going to buy now the right and obligation on you to deliver that cotton three months from now at a particular price. So I don't need to store the cotton and you can wait until it comes in. But this becomes a means by which the price changes and affects what cotton is worth on a day-to-day, on a spot trade. A a moment of clarification here. Futures differ from um, what are called spot transactions. Spot transactions are transactions that happen on the spot. I give you money, you give me cotton. And this is the way people sort of assume the market works. But in fact, what happens is I need the cotton at some point in the future, and I need to know what price that cotton will cost in the future so that I can price the goods that are coming out of my factory um, for the contracts of people who want my, the cloth that I'm producing. So I make a contract with you to deliver the cotton, but then this contract itself becomes a commodity that can be traded. So someone can buy from me that right on that obligation on you to deliver cotton at a certain price. And many, many more of these contracts are made than cotton actually exists. It can be settled. If there's no, if, if the time comes and I don't actually need the cotton, but the cotton's gone up in price, then we will settle between us what the difference is. And as a result, this is a way for information guesses about what will be the price of cotton, how much will be available and how much will be needed in the mills. It's a way for a million people's guesses about what that's going to be three months from now to actually shape the price. So that people, it's a way for information to enter into the market and enter into the price of what cotton will be. I hope that was clear. That was great. So with that kind of primer, let's talk a little bit about what's happening at the moment um, 
where your story unfolds. I, I think probably a decent number of people have an idea that cotton prices fluctuate a lot, you know, between there's the panics of the 1890s and kind of into the early 20th century. And we have a narrative that these fluctuations have a really big impact on um, on the economy. They also, we have a narrative that they have a big impact on farmers and the way that um, farmers' politics plays out in, you know, various populist movements and things like that. Um, so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about this kind of context. What's happening um, with cotton? What's happening uh, with the markets? And then you're coming in to say, hey, we have this story wrong. So then we'll get to that part. One of the really good things about having a cotton futures market is, as Barbara was saying, it's a way for the market on a daily basis to take cognizance of new information about the future and adjust the price to reflect that information. So a lot of it depends on things like the weather. So if there's a particularly hot summer, no rain, that's going to make the crop smaller, and that affects the, the shape of the price. Uh, if, if you realize that you know, there's big changes in transport, and new areas are opened up, so there's a lot more acres of cotton being planted, then that's going to affect the price uh, sort of months ahead. So the effect of having a futures market is that it makes it easier to deal with and, and reduce price volatility. And that's really good for everybody. So as, as Barbara was saying, she was sort of emphasizing the, the buyer, the manufacturer, uh, who, who doesn't like price volatility. They want to contract for the goods that they're manufacturing and selling at a certain price, but to do that and not lose their shirt, they need to know how much they're going to have to pay for the raw materials. And by the same token, the farmer, because of course this is the period where a lot of cotton, cotton particularly, a lot of agricultural commodities are produced on credit. So they're borrowing money for food, they're borrowing money for fertilizer and cotton seed and so forth. And if the farmers have a sense of what the price is going to be in the future, they're in better shape. So having a, a, a futures market that works and works properly is really good because it reduces that volatility. But what happens across the 1880s, and as, as probably, I'll say everybody, but I, probably everybody who's listening to this podcast anyway, uh, is aware the price of cotton is really, really high, spectacularly high at the end of the Civil War, and then sort of slowly and then sharp, more sharply sort of in the 1870s, 1880s, uh, tails off until it gets really, really low in the middle of the 1890s, and then sort of slowly increases a bit after that, and then increases a good bit uh, from kind of the, the late 1900s, early 1910s, and the traditional explanation of this by most historians is that the reason for the extraordinarily low price of cotton, actually below the price of production in a lot of cases, in the middle of the 1890s, is simply overproduction. That is to say, farmers are raising too much cotton, and that brings the price down. And that seems like a plausible explanation, except it assumes that the cotton market is the simple graph that we all learned in economics class of supply 
and demand and align and so forth, and the price is, is right where that meets. And our one of our sort of key arguments is that if you look at what was happening with demand and supply at the point when the prices were at their lowest, actually supply is not keeping up with demand. Demand is supply is increasing, but demand is increasing even more quickly. And the reason that that doesn't lead to a higher price is that the futures market is being manipulated and isn't really functioning properly. So when I say functioning properly, I just mean that a market that's functioning properly should set a price that accurately reflects the relationship between supply and demand. And because of things that were happening in the futures market, uh, that wasn't happening. Cotton futures were first traded in New York and Liverpool starting about 1868 and 1869. And then later uh, in sort of the beginning of 1880, the New Orleans Cotton Exchange, which had been running for about 10 years, uh, the New Orleans Cotton Exchange starts regularly trading futures. And with a couple of brief exceptions, cotton futures were, were really only ever traded in New York and New Orleans in the U.S. And what happens over the 1880s and 1890s is that cotton becomes significantly less important to the business of New York and less and less actual cotton comes through. So by the late 1880s or so, mid-1880s, there's very, very few actual bales of cotton coming through New York. New Orleans is another story. There's still plenty of cotton coming through the spot market there. And the New York Cotton Exchange manages to hold on to power in the market. And the way they do that is by changing the rules of futures trading in ways that are good for the members of the cotton exchange, but very bad for farmers and very bad actually for manufacturers. Uh, to some extent, it's good for manufacturers because the New York traders tend to try to keep prices low, but they also keep them quite volatile. And the manufacturers, mostly in New England, kind of like low prices, but they'd rather have steady prices, even if they're not the lowest prices they can get, because they can always change their price for what they're selling, but it's the, the volatility that kills them. Can I interrupt for a moment and say that the New York um, traders in cotton have sort of learned how to make money by keeping prices low. They predict very large crops coming to the market in the fall and the winter um, as farmers are harvesting and selling out their crops and trying to pay their own debts in December and January. So the New Yorkers have perfected a method by which they're predicting very large crops, which push the prices down. And as those um, as it becomes clear that the crop is, in fact, much smaller than was expected as it comes through the gins and begins begins to be sold, the price will shoot up and the, and the um, New Yorkers will make a lot of money. But none of this benefits the farmers because they've already sold out their crops. And this is one of the reasons the prices are so low on an annual basis. And this is damaging farmers um, 
because the New Yorkers have really learned how to sell short and how to make money by keeping the price low, and they've perfected that method. And as Bruce was saying, they're changing the rules by which they trade on a regular basis within their exchange in order to affect that shift, in order to make the price low. Okay. So this is, creates a situation that's bad for farmers. <laughs> it creates a situation that uh, gives New York a lot of control. And then you also have this competing market in New Orleans. So in your book, at the end of the day, your book argues for regulation. So eventually we're, we're getting to that. But in the meantime, what happens here? How do farmers push back y- your story? And, and you say towards the beginning even that there are heroes in the story. I think Bruce already mentioned uh, William Perry Brown. Um, how do these these folks who are getting the short end of this situation, how do they push back? What do they do? There are a couple of different ways. Okay, Bruce, you go. Sorry. Maybe the thing to say is, is that uh, as futures trading becomes a standard part of the, of the cotton market, farmers are, are aware very quickly that they're being screwed over by this, and they're very angry about it. And so there's a, a big movement in the, uh, in the 1880s, along with the, the rest of the agrarian movement, to get rid of futures trading altogether. So farmers, cotton farmers are telling their congressmen, just get rid of futures trading. They're all crooks. They're selling things they don't actually own. They're selling bales of cotton months in advance before the cotton's even planted. That can't be right. That's why the price is low. And the farmers are kind of right. They're right that it's problems with the futures market that is pushing the price low. But the solution, fortunately, they don't have the political power to make that happen because without a futures market, they would actually get less money. Um, it would keep the price low and they would have to sell uh, all at the same time as soon as they harvest. So, so there's always sort of in the background, there are angry farmers telling their congressmen to just get rid of futures trading. So that threat is kind of hovering in the air all the time. And it's sort of a uh, comes to a head in 1890 for a little while with the proposal to do that kind of at the same time as the Sherman Antitrust Act is coming through. But the the way they tried to solve this problem, the first thing they try to do is uh, not really the farmers and not even really the, the traders in New Orleans, but the federal government tries to circulate better crop information. They think, well, if everybody had good information about the crop, then prices would be set properly. So they do that through the U.S. Department of Agriculture and then a little bit later through the Census Bureau. And they do improve the quality of crop information that's available to farmers and traders and country store operators and so forth. But it's not really enough to overcome the entrenched market power of of New York and particularly these very close connections between the New York Cotton Exchange and the big banks on Wall Street and the efforts of the government to sort of improve information and just sort of hope that information alone will solve the problem isn't really enough. It's It's a classic sort of form of regulation and it leads to one of the most fascinating episodes in our book, I think. Shall we talk about the window shade scandal, Bruce? Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. So, no, I'll eventually get back to William Perry Brown. So the government is trying to produce information about the size of the crop through the Department of Agriculture and then eventually through the census as the crop is maturing in the ground during the summer and in the fall as it begins to be harvested. How much cotton is out there 
and this will reflect supply and demand. And it has a network of correspondents that's sending in information to the federal government in D.C. Um, about the size of the crop in a particular region. And this information is compiled and then distributed nationwide through the telegraph service at the same time, hoping that this will influence price. But information, sunshine form of regulation, um, which sheds light on a topic and so everybody can behave according to supply and demand and according to their self-interest, information can be manipulated. And we have a, a statistician for the USDA who begins to sell crop information before it can be distributed to the nation. He begins to sell this information from the room in which the crop reports are being compiled. He sells the information by raising and lowering a window shade to indicate if the crop is bigger or smaller than is expected. And he's paid off by the brokers who are um, outside watching. Um, he's paid off and he becomes fantastically rich. And this ability to manipulate the information that the government is producing means that that's an ineffective way to regulate the price of the market. He's eventually discovered and this um, erases the goodwill or, or the good opinion of the people and the farmers to the USDA and to the effort of information and sunshine to regulate the market. Bruce, do you want to take it from there? Yeah, um, and actually, ironically, what that guy was doing, sort of raising the window shade if the crop was going to be low, bigger and lowering it if it was going to be smaller, and his buddy out in the street looking at that and then running down to the telegraph uh, office and uh, telegraphing as his friend in New York to make trades on that basis. Uh, that actually wasn't illegal, as it turned out. There was no rule about insider trading like that until only about 10 years ago. And the USDA, or sorry, the, the uh, uh, Commodities Futures Trading Commission instigated a, a rule saying that it is actually illegal to use that sort of inside information and they called it the Eddie Murphy rule, based on the Eddie Murphy character in the film Trading Places. Uh, but at the time that this guy was doing it, it wasn't actually illegal as much as uh, Teddy Roosevelt thought maybe it should be. So you have the federal government trying to make the situation better with information and not really succeeding. At the same time, you have a group of traders in New Orleans sort of led by William P. Brown and uh, – his, his business partner, Frank Hain, who believed that the price of cotton is much lower than it should be. And they think that it would be good for farmers in the South, businessmen in the South, and also, of course, themselves, because they're also traders and they get a commission on the value of the, the contracts they trade and the value of the, the actual spot cotton that they trade. So if the price is higher, they're getting a better, a better price for that. And they actually have a superior set of information because they, the New Orleans Cotton Exchange, the secretary of the exchange, Henry Hester, has spent years and years developing a network of people that he can send telegraphs to and uh, telegrams to and find out what's the weather like, how's the crop looking there, how many acres has your neighbor planted this year, and so forth. So the New Orleans people have kind of everything they need in terms of good information to trade, but what they don't have is just sort of the, the market power and the financial backing to pull this off. And 
Brown sort of get really gets his start by making a, a really clever trade and sort of squeezing the New Orleans market at the time of the Galveston hurricane of 1900. So that happens to fall just about the time that the contracts for that month have to be closed out. Everybody panics when the hurricane hits and it's not really clear how much damage has been done. He buys up a bunch of contracts and makes sort of a, a bit of seed money there. He then uses the, the fortune that he makes in 1900 to consolidate a lot of banks in New Orleans. So they, they really, he and some business colleagues in New Orleans really sort of expand the banking capacity in, in New Orleans. And at that point, they now have quite a lot of financial muscle behind them. Uh, Brown is a, a really brilliant trader. They have really good information about the market. They have uh, an increasing number of southern textile manufacturers who also support this idea of a higher price for cotton, which might seem counterintuitive. But as the New South people were saying, you know, these are cotton factories in cotton fields. So the mill owners were happy to pay a higher price. It's good for the whole area. And at that point, they just sort of had to wait for the right moment to make their move. And, and that moment comes sort of in the late summer of 1902, when William Perry Brown, in about August of 1902, starts buying contracts for July of night, May, May, June, July of 1903. And a couple of other traders in the market see that demand has been increasing faster than supply and that this is sort of a moment to uh, really push the price up and make some money. And through sort of the early trading of 1903, a couple other big traders, uh, Theodore Price and uh, Daniel Sully, sort of come in the market, push the price up, and then get out of the market. Brown and the other people behind him stay in the market and by about the end of May, they've actually begun to corner the, the market. And sort of uh, the, the contracts come due at the end of every month. So sort of every month you see this pattern of the bears are trying to push the price back down, the bulls are sort of pushing it up, and then there's a bit of drama at the end. And eventually Brown and his colleagues corner the whole market. So the price of cotton had been seven cents at the beginning of that year, and they pushed it up to 14. So at a certain point, when all the contracts have come, come due, and uh, Brown is holding a lot of contracts saying, I will pay this amount of money, and you have to deliver this amount of cotton to me. And people have been buying lots of those because they think he's not going to have enough money, and he'll have to say, I can't fulfill my contract, and in order to keep his trading license, they'll be able to say, well, you know, you have to pay off this amount and, and so forth, because you have to actually fulfill your contract or you get kicked out of the exchange. But in the event, he does have enough money, and they don't have any cotton, but they have to deliver the cotton or they get kicked off the exchange. So the only person who has cotton is William Perry Brown. So they've agreed to deliver cotton to him, but they wind up having to buy the cotton from him at today's price of 
13 or 14 cents and then turn around and sell it back to them for seven cents or eight cents or nine cents. So in a single day, he makes, well, Brown, Brown alone, not his, his business partners, but Brown alone makes, oh, this is embarrassing because I've forgotten it now. Was it five million or seven million? Somewhere there. I think I think the whole group of them is making ten or twelve million dollars in a single day. That's the day the cotton is due for delivery. Yeah. So uh, this is the way it works when you corner the world market in cotton, which is to say that you own contracts, you've bought contracts for them to deliver cotton, and there's no cotton available. So they have to pay you directly to get out of their contract or else buy from you cotton at today's prices and sell it back to you at the price they contracted to many months ago, which is a lot lower. So by owning all the cotton, by buying all these contracts, he's able to own all the cotton in the world because it's a short crop year. It's not overproduction. There's not enough cotton available. And as a result, um, he's able to push the price around wherever he likes it. So what are the effects of having this really small group of people have so much control and so much influence on the price of cotton on this market? How does that affect everybody else and, and affect the market going forward? Well, it, the, uh, one of the immediate effects... Um, is that the price of cotton goes up quite a bit, and 1903 is a really good year to be a, a cotton farmer. In fact, I was giving a talk on this in at a, a conference in Texas about cotton back in April, and one of the other speakers who was a, a local cotton farmer was talking about his uh, great-grandfather sort of went from renting a farm to actually buying his own farm in 1903, and it was entirely, you know, I, the this farmer guy didn't really know until I was, was talking about this that 1903 was this really crucial year, but clearly this is a case where the big price of cotton that year helped drag a lot of poor southern farmers out of debt, and one observer noted that quite a lot of African Americans in the South were able to get out of debt finally, buy their own farms and stuff. So it did have a really major effect uh, across the South and, and on farmers. In terms of the market, though, and this is the this is where it's not just sort of a, a story about William Perry Brown and um, just how clever and powerful he was. In terms of the market, it didn't have as much of an effect as you might think because it did help but it didn't change the fundamental structures and institutions of the market. So New Orleans was a more powerful market. They were able to sort of push the price up from what it had been. They were able to influence the price in a way that New York and before New York, Liverpool had, had done primarily. But it turned out they couldn't really get rid of all of the price volatility, and they couldn't really – regulate the market simply through exercising market power. Uh, although they did kind of keep trying, and by uh, 1909, 1910, they basically were in a position to corner the market again. But in the meantime, what had happened was the Bureau of Corporations, uh, so we get the federal government getting back involved. So they've tried to disseminate good information about the crop. That didn't really work. 
So now the Bureau of Corporations, after the, the window shade scandal and, and another sort of scandal uh, happened, the Bureau of Corporations launches an investigation and sort of really gets into the nuts and bolts and the nitty-gritty of how the New York Cotton Exchange works and how it keeps prices down. And the response to this is that it really validates sort of the gut instinct that Southern farmers had all along that these people in New York were kind of messing with the market and getting rich at their expense. And so you get a renewed push from Southern congressmen to – Again, get rid of futures trading, do something about futures trading. So you start getting this uh, groundswell of political momentum. So there are lots and lots of bills. Uh, Cotton Ed Smith from South Carolina, who's a senator, introduces some bills. Cotton Tom Heflin, who's a representative from Alabama, introduces bills. Politicians whose nickname isn't Cotton something introduce (laughs) bills. There are lots of these bills popping up. Most of them are short-sighted and not very smart and would have actually caused problems had they been implemented. But a couple of things happen. You get uh, A.F. Lieber, a congressman from South Carolina, becomes uh, chair of the House Agriculture Committee. And in 1912, the Congress goes to Democratic control. You have a Democratic president. And at that point, it becomes clear that finally there's not sort of a political roadblock because what would happen in the past is the Southern cotton farmers wanted to pass a bill to regulate this Republican Midwestern grain farmers also wanted to pass a bill, but Republicans also kind of represented the big business interests. And so the Republican party wouldn't really get behind this. Once the Democrats are in charge, it's clear that there will be a bill to get passed, and it eventually is passed as the Cotton Futures Act in, in 1914, uh, which, to make a long story short, it takes the, the sort of good, fair, above-board practices of the New Orleans Cotton Exchange and makes that the industry standard and outlaws some of the, the devious things that the New York Cotton Exchange was doing. So is regulation the only answer to these problems for for the cotton industry at this moment? I think so. Um, it's clear that um, self-regulation, which is what it's called when there are exchanges in which members participate and they're bound by rules, it's clear that as long as there's more than one cotton exchange performing futures trading, that the rules can be manipulated because they're not binding on the entire trade. So if New York sets a rule about delivery of different grades of cotton and the price at which those will trade in the future, um, this can manipulate the price all across the market. And until rules are binding on the entire cotton market or the entire national trade on members of both cotton exchanges, then really rules can be manipulated in order to create advantage for one exchange instead of the other. So while there are several different efforts to fix the market, which is to say to make the price accurately reflect supply and demand, the only one that works is one that's nationally binding. The only one that works to make price work, to make the economy work, is federal regulation. So just to give an example of how the New York Cotton Exchange worked, as, as we were saying earlier, a, a futures contract 
is a contract that's made now to be binding at a future date, but it's binding on both parties. So if I agree to sell you cotton at a certain price on, on this date, then when that date comes, you have an absolute and unqualified right to demand that cotton. And by the same token, I have an absolute and unqualified right to demand my money. So in order to get out of the, the contract, you have to have both parties agree to to not uh, fulfill the, the contract, right? You can't just have one party drop out. And the New York Cotton Exchange had very, very low standards for the quality of cotton that could be delivered to actually fulfill a contract. So if we came along and the, the mature date, uh, the, the delivery date for a contract came along and I said, okay, we've agreed. Now you need to deliver the cotton to me. You can actually go to one of the warehouses in New York where they had bales of cotton that sticks and leaves bound in the shape of cotton yeah, bales. That were, yeah, essentially just sticks and leaves bound up in the shape of cotton bales, as, as one person said. And you would go get one of those or some of those and deliver those to me and say, okay, here's the cotton, pay me my money. And I would say, oh, well, I can't actually sell that because it has no commercial value. It can't actually be spun or used for anything. So, yeah, I guess I'll take that terrible price that you offered me, after all, instead of actually executing the trade. That's just one of many examples of the kinds of rules that were functioning at New York that made it very difficult for a fair trade to happen because, you know, a fair trade would be that I say, okay, the, the direction the price has gone means that I want to execute this, this contract and, and uh, conclude this contract. But you would use that sort of sneaky rule with the, the low-quality cotton or you might uh, deliver it and actually just give me a piece of paper saying, well, your cotton, there's some of it in this warehouse and there's some over in Hoboken and there's some somewhere up in a warehouse in Yonkers and all these various places. There's all sorts of little devious ways that the market, that the New York Cotton Exchange had to push and, and kind of bully participants into making a, a, a deal instead of actually letting the contracts mature. And that was part of what you know, push the price down and, and mess things up. And and that's something that really was only fixable by national federal regulation. Now, of course, what complicates the story is that this is the, the Cotton Futures Act of 1914, and it's finished in the summer of 1914. But just at the same time, World War One breaks out, the cotton market shuts down for about three or four months, doesn't really open, reopen until November. The price of cotton bottoms out, partly because they don't have a futures. Well, you, you can't ship cotton across the ocean because the Germans are sinking it and, and so forth. Uh, the cotton futures market collapses because nobody quite knows, knows anything about the future, really. So you don't really get a, a clear sense of, how the Cotton Futures Act goes into effect until well into the 1920s. Um, so the cotton market, you know, they, they fix it, 
and then something even bigger breaks. But we think it was a, a pretty good fix, except for World War One happening. Well, on that note, my next question was going to be, how does the global market fit into this? Because I want to talk a little bit about about uh, sort of present parallels or, or lessons or however you want to put that. But, I mean, there is a very global market for cotton. So how does thinking about national regulation influence or how does the global market complicate that uh, effort? How do those work together? Besides um, World War One, which you just talked about. <laughs> Sure. No, it's complicated. Um, Liverpool is a major player in the story as it actually developed. The Liverpool Cotton Exchange is where most of the cotton in the world is headed because it it supplies cotton to the cotton mills of Manchester and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, alas, for our purposes, the records of the Liverpool Cotton Brokers Association didn't come open until our book was done. I've since been in there and photographed almost all of them, but we think that the, the story as it exists as a conflict between New York and New Orleans is still sound. Liverpool is producing orders, but it's not really the place where the drama about prices is happening in this particular period. That said... When our cotton bowls out of New Orleans, when Frank um, Hain and, and William Perry Brown are raising the price of cotton in order to reflect the fact that the mills want a lot of cotton and the farmers are not producing as much of it as they used to do, um, when they're able to raise the price in 1903, the response on the part of the British government and the manufacturers around the world is extremely dramatic. The price is going up and they don't know what it's going to be in future and where the price is set. New Orleans, they're less familiar. And as a result, they want to increase where they grow cotton around the world. So this adds to their <clears throat> imperial ambitions, if you will. The French are like hoping that they'll be able to grow some cotton in Africa, which, of course, actually happens. The efforts to expand the where cotton is grown in order to make more supply, to meet that demand and to reduce the power of um to reduce the power of the New Orleans Cotton Exchange and its principal brokers to set the price is one of the main goals of the interventionist, protectionist governments of Europe that have these colonies in which they hope to grow more cotton. And this has a tremendous effect on the world market, but at the same time, one, there's kind of nothing like American cotton and two, that supply is dwindling even further at the same time because the boll weevil has begun to creep up the Gulf Coast and has begun to get further and further into the cotton lands, uh, it, into the lands in which cotton is being produced in the United States. And this is actually diminishing the amount of cotton that is grown at the very moment people are hoping to, people in European capitals are hoping to increase the supply. Okay, so the next thing I was wondering is if you could talk a little bit about how we might use the story to think about the present or how what lessons we might have learned, right, as we talked about or as I talked about at least at the beginning, this is a time period where with the most recent financial crash, we often or many people look back to that moment and say, oh, look at this lessons that we can take from the 1890s. Let's talk about the early 1900s. Let's talk about the parallels. And I think you're making an argument that often those parallels are a bit uh, too easy. So I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think one, one thing that comes to mind is as the, as the Cotton Futures Act was looming 
and it was going to really take a lot of this this power away from the New York Cotton Exchange. A guy called Arthur Marsh, who was a uh, one of the leaders of of the New York Cotton Exchange, published an article. I think it was in the New York Times, saying everything's fine. You know, people wouldn't trade on the New York Cotton Exchange if it wasn't a good exchange. You know, people must like it because they use it. And it's kind of this. Uh, I, th- I think that's very telling because it's kind of like saying, well, you know, people wouldn't do credit default swaps if they weren't a good thing. You know, but the reason people traded on the New York Cotton Exchange was it was one of the only places where you could trade. And it was kind of using market power to influence market behavior. So in, in much the same way that we've, we've seen uh, discussions about computer software and stuff in the, in the past number of years, you know, people use, I won't name it because maybe there's some sort of a issue here, but, you know, people use a certain word processing or office product suite because it's great. Yeah, but it's also because it kind of comes pre-installed on everything and it's compatible and so forth. So in some ways, I think that's a bit of a parallel. And I also think that one of the things that our story shows is that there is this incremental effort to reform the market through sort of small nudges and little little efforts and you know the market will sort itself out the the new orleans people they'll sort of get some power and and that'll fix things but ultimately what fixes things is actual sort of clear binding government regulation so the the enforcement part of the uh, cotton futures act essentially sets a, a nominal tax of i think it might have been 50 cents a bale or five cents a bale on every bale of cotton that's traded under those rules. But every bale of cotton that's not traded under those rules gets a tax of like $5. So it basically says you can do it this way and the market can continue. Or if not, we will have a, a punitive crippling um, sort of tax. Um, and, and I think the other thing is that, you know, this is sort of, how does a market and how does a government deal with new financial instruments and sort of catching up with that? And ultimately, what we see in, in this case is there is a good sort of above board, honest way to use these. And that's, that's one of the things that, that really sets uh, Frank Lieber, uh, the South Carolina congressman who writes the Cotton Futures Act, that sets him apart from all of his colleagues really is that when he goes to craft a bill, he doesn't just listen to his angry farmer constituents. And there are plenty of them in in South Carolina. He goes to the people in the new York, new Orleans cotton exchange and says, well, according to this Bureau of corporations report, you seem to be doing things right. So how do you think the market should be regulated? So we get the, the sort of honest, good parts of the market driving out the dishonest, bad parts of the market. And I think that's, you know, a useful, could be a useful lesson for today. Absolutely. 
One of the most interesting things I think I learned while writing the book and learning how the futures market worked was that when financial instruments are new, when they're first being um, produced and bought and sold, um, that even the participants don't understand exactly how they're going to operate in every eventuality. So that they don't necessarily know when they buy a, a contract for delivery three months from now, that if the cotton is not available, what that will do to the price and how they'll settle it. So watching as the mechanisms arise and are recognized by the participants and then either the rules are manipulated or the trade is set right in some fashion in order to reflect the eventuality. And I think the new financial derivatives with which we're um, contending today are similar. I think that people don't know that or didn't know that real estate was a national market and that the prices could go down and that this would affect all the trades that had been made on the mortgages instead of on the houses themselves. And so watching that play out leads to a gigantic crash, but at the same time can also lead to a recognition of how the instrument, how the derivative works, and that this allows for the crafting of regulation that makes the price and the operation of that derivative function the way it's supposed to, because you're not going to stop people from trading in these things. They'll develop other methods if, they're, if what they've been trading in, if these instruments they've been trading in are outlawed, they'll just develop new ways of performing the same market function. So the trick is to try to understand how that derivative works and craft regulation that reflects it and makes it work in response to the market, in response to supply and demand. So while I think that regulation is important, I think it's also important that it be shaped by the people who are actually performing the trades and have some experience in how this is going to play out. And that's what happened in 1914. And, and we can hope that it would happen um, with the newer financial instruments that are emerging as a result of changing technology and um, clever ideas. The, the market mechanisms have to function like a machine or else, um, or else everybody loses, as we've learned recently. In, in fact, one, one more sort of small question between what we were writing about and, and the, the recent financial crash is that Lehman Brothers, who we all know, crashed rather spectacularly. They actually pop up in our story because the, the firm started out as a cotton brokerage in New Orleans. So they're, they're really a, a very direct connection um, from the, the sort of period of sort of new financial instruments and problems with markets that aren't working and the prospect of federal regulation uh, and, and the more recent, more recent history of that. That's a good point. All right, great. Well, those are good lessons. Thank you so much. And we've taken a lot of your time. We traditionally ask at the end of the podcast what you guys are working on now, which I'm guessing are probably separate projects. So we'll start We'll start with you again, Barbara. Well, let me um, end our talk about the Cotton Kings by saying that despite the sort of technical details that we've expressed here, I think it's a very exciting story. It's kind of a rip-roaring narrative in which fortunes are made and traded, and we've tried to preserve a good deal of that drama, as well as providing technical explanations. What are we working on now? I'm writing a history of technology treatment of the Industrial Revolution, 
the British manufacture of cotton goods and textile goods in the late 1700s and early 1800s. I've just spent two years in the north of England on a fellowship doing the research and beginning the writing for that. It's intended for the classroom to, to use history of technology methods to understand the way new machines function in a changing business environment as opposed to just seeing technology dropping from the sky and causing change. I have other projects, but let me hand it off to Bruce to talk about his, because he always has quite a lot going on. We can get back to me. After a number of years, sort of in the, the early period of, of, of my research, I tended to focus on South Carolina and North Carolina, because that's where I was from and where the archives were handy and so forth. But this project has allowed me to uh, to pivot and, and re rethink myself as a bit of a New Orleans historian. So I'm kind of like... Getting up to speed on New Orleans, uh, it's a delightful city to do research in. No disrespect to Columbia, South Carolina, but you know the the music, the the food is is much nicer when you're visiting the archives. So I've got a couple of things uh, going there at the moment. Uh, a sort of larger, longer term project about the outbreak of bubonic plague in New Orleans in 1914 and the public yeah. health response uh, that. <laughs> Barbara and I are kind of working together on and uh, hopefully drawing in some other collaborators uh, because the experience, this was really the first big collaborative project that I had done. And it was so much fun that we thought, well, we definitely want to find something else to keep working on. Uh, And then I have another sort of side project, which at the moment appears to be an article uh, taking shape about salvage fraud and the creation of private police force in New Orleans for the waterfront in the late 1870s, early 1880s. And I am also involved in a collaborative project at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, um, a group of four, the, the project is called Moving Crops, and it's a group of four scholars, Francesca Bray at Edinburgh, um, Tiago Sariva at Drexel, an old um, STS friend of mine, and John Lurdasami in Madras in India. And we're coming together several times a year in Berlin in order to try to write a new global history that uses crops and agriculture as our main focus. So a crop is established in a particular place, um, certain elements come in to um, make it work, different arrangements for labor, different forms of technology. And then when the crop is moved to a different location, what changes, what stays the same? How can we view sort of the scales of history and um, the upsets of global um, the upsets of global history within the context of crops and agriculture as our main example? So a little too much going on. Sounds very exciting. It sounds like a lot of uh, great projects. And you're right, your book is fascinating. And I think that really, though, you know, you start your introduction and you, and you mentioned in your comments here a sort of, oh, there's lots of technical details. But if anything, uh, the latest run of films coming out of the recent crash tell you that these financial stories are exciting and have lots of interesting characters. And your book shows that was true a long time ago as well. Thank you. We think so too. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and hopefully maybe we'll talk to you again when one of your other projects are done. <laughs>